great to see you this morning. We are glad that you're here. Uh, we are in part three of a series we're calling more. If this is your first time ever to check us out at Eastlake, uh, we're a church that uh, kind of tries to do things a little bit differently, <clears throat> tries to do church for people who don't typically like it, and uh, we teach in series here, and this is a series that we started a couple of weeks ago. In fact, this is part three, so if you've missed the first two weeks and you're interested in going back, or I say something that kind of sounds like an assumption, a, a conclusion that I've already jumped to, it's probably, it might be because we've already talked about it a little bit, and so... There's a website you can go to, eastlaketricities.com slash talks, and if you go there, you can listen to or watch uh, parts one and parts two. Inside of your program is a note sheet you can follow along with today, but we've been asking a question um, every single week uh, that's kind of a little bit, it's a loaded question a little bit. Uh, it's a question that you would expect from a, a church, and then it goes on to answer it in a different way. The question is simply, what is it that you want? What do you want? What is it that you want? It's a question that you've asked in the middle of a conversation with somebody that uh, you're dating or are married to, and the frustration level has reached a point where you're like, I, I don't even know anymore. What is it that you want from me? I just need some clarification. I need some next steps right here. And then they respond with, you should know what I want, right? And you're like, ah, oh, crap. We don't, I, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, but it's also a question that uh, we kind of deal with uh, on a personal level when it comes to thinking through what's going to be the, the uh, progress. It's going to be a sense of progress or fulfillment in life. What are we chasing after? I mean, what's the goal of all of this? What, 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 what is it that you want? And the problem sometimes is you can think you know what you want, but then you get it and you're like, oh, that's not what I wanted, right? We all, we all wanted a sequel to The Matrix. And then we got one and we're like, oh, that was stupid. We all wanted, we all wanted George Lucas to make more Star Wars films. And then episode one came out and you're like, well, that was dumb. I don't want, to, I don't want that anymore. Uh, sometimes it's someone that we wanted. We think we want someone, and then we find out when we get that person, then we're like, ooh, that's not what I wanted. And hopefully you figured that out before you stood up in front of your fans and family and a priest and, and said, I do to each other. Um, but we, we all have, so it's like this loaded, tricky question where um, we, we think we know what we want. Like we're going through life a lot of times thinking that we know what, what we want. And then every once in a while we're challenged with that. Is that what you really want? Because then we get it and we don't. Then that, that didn't provide the sense of fulfillment that we wanted. And so a safer answer has been more. A safer answer has been, um, well, I feel like I'm doing pretty good at life already. And so what I really want is not something different. I just want something more. I feel like I've got pretty good family, a pretty good relationship, a pretty good marriage so far, a pretty decent nest egg retirement. I just need a little bit more. And if I just keep on this same old track that I'm doing, just ask me 10 years from now, and I, and I think I'll have a better answer for you about this. Is, I, got, I finally got what I wanted. But we're kind of operating our lives as if more is the answer. That just seems to be like this uh, constantly safe thing. And so, but the problem that we said in, in week two really was this. Too often in life, we miss out on what we really want because we're distracted by the things that we want. There are things in life that we want and in and and, and a setting like this, if, I, if we were sitting over coffee and I said, what is it that you really want? You'd be able to kind of list off some things that are, are, are a little bit more um, genuine, a little bit more, uh, I don't know, they have some legs to them a little bit. And you'd be able to list those things off as things that you really want. But, but then when, when we evaluated kind of your current activity in life, we would say, man, I, it seems like the things that you um, really want are being robbed by the things that you just like want, the things I, I want this. Um, and, and so I, ch I chase after this at the expense of what is really most important. So then the question, the, the, the better question was probably not what do you want, but what do you really want? What are the things in life that you value? What are the things that you deeply long for? What are the things that you ultimately love? And again, you know the right answer to this question. If we were sitting in a coffee shop across from each other, you would have an answer that is very thoughtful because I'm a pastor and, and, and you're, you're sitting there going, well, I'm supposed to say this. You know what you're supposed to say, don't you? Right. Well, 
uh, what's really important to me is integrity and uh, honesty in all my dealings. And um, if, if, if this was uh, my funeral, if I could think of, of, um, of dying and, and what I would want said of me from my family, from my spouse, from my kids, from my coworkers, from the people that I volunteer with, I would want it to be these things. And you would be able to list out, uh, uh, point to a couple of things. It would be like, this is what I really want in life. The interesting thing about that is if we took those things that you want in life, oftentimes those things are sacrificed or put on the back burner for things that kind of aren't as good. And we settle for those things. When we're unclear of what we really want, we settle for the things that we want. And we miss out on the things that are most important for us. And when you state, if you stated to me, yeah, but what I really want, you could point out, we put them up on a whiteboard or put them down on a napkin or something like that. You would state them with entire authenticity. You would be completely genuine. It would be a true expression of our intellectual conviction. But what we fail to realize in our lives, and the reason we want to do this series is because I think the, the reality is that your deepest desire is the one manifested in your daily life and your daily habits. We can think through logically what is most important, but what we fail to identify is how the things, the habits at which we do our daily life, the things at which consumes our time, the rituals that we do on a daily basis do more to shape our loves and shape what it is that we're passionate for than what we think through and what we would list down as things that we're passionate about and things that we care about most. We, 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 um, we think of ourselves as, as thinking things. We think and then we do. Everything that I do is based on a process of thinking through something and making the best logical decision and going that direction. That may be true at some point. You may have thought through something and then decided that this is how I want to react and this is what I want to do. But the reality is that most of our life is spent at an unconscious level, right? When I can think through things and then logically make the progression and choose to do that, that is a conscious pro pro progression. I have thought through that. But most of your life is spent at an unconscious level doing the things that are habitually normal to you. As an example, in about 20 minutes, I'm going to say, have a great week. We'll see you next week. You guys are going to go out of here. You're going to pick up your kids because if you forget, then we give them espresso and a mullet and then we send them home with you later, right? But if you're going to pick up your kids and you're going to get in your car and then you're going to pull, you're going to put the car in reverse and then you're going to do all the things and you're going to talk to whoever you came here with or you're going to talk to your kids, you're going to do something and you're going to talk about, I don't think we really do things on the unconscious level. I think that I'm pretty good at thinking through all this stuff. You're going to put it in drive and you're going to be like, I think that I logically think through and make like uh, not baseless decisions. I, I don't think that I'm a machine or a robot. I think I'm pretty logical. And all of a sudden you're going to be like, oh, we're home. And you just drove 75 miles an hour, by the way, on a freeway to get home without even thinking about it. Why? Because you're not 16 anymore. Do you remember the first time that you drove? Do you remember how many times you checked the mirror? Do you remember how many times you did 10 and 2, adjust the mirror, seatbelt, and looking all around and doing this kind of thing? I remember my, like, my drive over to get my light. I, I, when, back when we did it, when, when you turned 16, you could go take the test. I think it's different now. I don't know how it all works now, but you've got to be like 21 to get your license or something. Um, 16, I, I got in the car. My dad had done a couple of drives with me. We are on our way to the DOL on Clearwater, 
and I come across the Blue Bridge because we lived in Pasco, and I do that little curve on 395 heading up towards Clearwater. And on that curve, I decided to take it a bit wide than what is normal. There's cars on this side, and I was just trying to play it safe, but I leaned heavily towards the concrete barrier on the other side. I literally think I was like two inches away from that barrier, and my dad is in the passenger seat just white-knuckling the whole thing, going, what are you doing, what are you doing, what are you doing? And so, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, I'm like, Dad, I'm like NASCAR. I'm like taking that thing wide and doing it. But I didn't know what I was doing. So, so then I'm, I'm so nervous, and I get to the driver's test area, and, and, and I remember um, I did a, the whole drive. It was with this older guy, and I'm pulling back into the lot because you had to do the loop around the neighborhood. And as we pull back in the lot, he's got, you have one thing left. This is what he tells me. You have one thing left, and you have an 80 right now, which is passing but barely, right? That's the B plus, mom, I got a B plus. Or, it's not even B plus, it's a, I don't know what that is, B minus? I don't know. I, didn't, I never got that good in school, so I never figured out what that was. Uh, so I, I pull in, and they're like, you have one thing left, it, you have an 80 right now, and it's parallel parking, good luck. You know what I mean? And I passed, I'm good like that. I was like, all right, thanks for telling me, right? But I am so hyper-focused in those moments. Now, one, you never have to parallel park in the Tri-City, so who cares about that? But two, I, I don't even think about, I don't, I don't even think about driving anymore the same way that you do. We, we just like, we mentally check out during that time. We're listening to podcasts, we're listening to the radio, we're having conversations, and, and that's just a natural, we operate in the unconscious most of the time, and we can understand that at that level, but what psychologists, like, there's this study that's done that says, listen, only about 5% of your daily activity is conscious action. For the most part, you and I go through the motions on any normal workday, work week. 95% of our actions are things that we've always done. We listen, we wake up, we grab the paper, we bring it. You don't get the paper, never mind. You open up your phone, you open up your computer, you make coffee, you make coffee again, you make toast, and then you, you wake up the kids and you wake up whoever else, and, and, and then you get going with your day. It's a rhythm, it's a routine, it's a... It's, it's a, a fancy spiritual word for it is a, is, a, is a liturgy or a ritual. We have all kinds of rituals that guide our day. And what we fail oftentimes to realize is how much those things shape us and shape what we love and shape what we care about. We know that that activity happens in our life, but when it comes to things that we care about, when it comes to things that we think are important, things that we value, things that we want to shape our life around, we think that we choose those, and we downplay the effects that routines have on our life and our ability to be able to do that. Most of our actions, most of our behaviors are managed below the surface. And so last week, what we said was um, Paul introduced us in, uh, he writes a letter to a church in Galatia, which was like a, a region, and it's called the, the Letter to the Galatians. It's in the New Testament. It's a really, it's like a short book, six chapters. And in chapter five, um, he presents us with life that's basically lived if you got your way and got what you wanted every single time that you wanted it. If you lived life on your terms, here's the result of what it looks like. It's called a vice and virtue list. He's not the first one to do this. In fact, it shows up several times in Scripture. It was a takeover from other ancient documents, other ancient writers, so like Plato and Aristotle, they would have virtue and vice lists as well. Um, they would say, listen, if you, a non-contemplative life, you find yourself doing this, but if you live in a contemplative way, if you know yourself fully, then you operate in this way. So vice virtue. Paul does the same thing. He brings this into this letter to this Galatian church and says, think about it. But instead of, instead of um, choosing to, do, uh, to, to operate in this way, he's like, 
a life lived in your way versus a life lived in God's way. That's the difference between the two things. So at first, he presents in, in verses 19 through 21, he presents the vice list. And, and, and um, I presented it last week in a different version. I'm going to read through it again. This time it's in uh, a version called the Message Version, which is written by a guy named Eugene Peterson. But anyways, it, it says, it starts off with this. It is obvious what kind of a life develops out of trying to get your own way all the time. If your goal in life is to get what you want, the way that I want it, when I want it, how I want it, here's what your life, here's what you should expect it to look like. Repetitive, loveless, cheap sex. A stinking accumulation of mental and emotional garbage. Frenzied and joyless grabs for happiness. Trinket gods. Magic show religion. Paranoid loneliness. Cutthroat competition. All-consuming yet never satisfied wants. A brutal temper. An impotence to love or to be loved. Divided homes and divided lives. Small-minded and lopsided pursuits. The vicious habit of depersonalizing everyone into a rival because everything's a competition uncontrolled and uncontrollable addictions, ugly parodies of community. I could go on. Please don't. It's enough. We're in. Uncle, uh, whatever. Tap out. I tap out. I'm out. Here's what he's saying. Listen, you and I, if I was to ask you, what do you value in life? You would never put anything of this list up on your list. You wouldn't. Sitting over coffee and I, I say, what's really a value to you? Uh, cheap, loveless sex. If you could put that on there, that would be amazing. I love it when it's just super cheap. Uh, I love paranoid loneliness. You would never say paranoid loneliness is a value for me. Um, you would, you would never say cutthroat competition, turning everybody into a rival. That is really what I prioritize in life. You would never say that. And yet Paul says, listen, um, though you would never say this, when you live your life the way that you want to, when the, the, the bar of evaluation is, is this what I want? It, or um, is this something that I think I deserve? I'm going to do life the way that I want. I'm going to get what I want, when I want, how I want it. This is what you can expect. He's saying, look at this. You would never choose this. But listen, it's not about choice. It's about the rituals and the, and, and the liturgy and all of the things that you go through in life that lead you to this. See, the problem is when we look at that list, there's some of that that may have resonated more than, than others with you. You may be like, yeah, check, unfortunately, check, 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 right? And we would say, yeah, but here's, the, here's why. I can give you an example why. Listen, he was a jerk. I didn't know that when we started dating. Um, here's the deal. My job requires that I be cutthroat. I don't, that's not really me, but in this industry, you cannot get by unless you are this way. I don't want this for myself, but I have, we all have excuses to why this is the case. And, and, and we never want to say, I, I, didn't, I didn't choose that. And Paul would say, I know you didn't choose it. But you fail to really evaluate the liturgies and the rituals that you're engaged in that lead you to this. You don't see it. You just keep engaging in it and you blame other extenuating circumstances that have nothing to do with this. And you excuse yourself from this behavior and you write off the reality that I'm engaged in these things and this is what it's resulting in in my life. We're not happy with that, but we fail to see the rituals that we engage in that shape us in that way. So what he says is these rituals, these are formative for you. Perhaps we need to pull ourselves out of those. Perhaps I just, he's like, I just want you to see can't you see that this is affecting you in this 
way, which is why the early church would engage in, uh, in deformative principles and then would engage in reform, reformative liturgies and reformative rituals, which is why they begin saying, all right, here's the, here's the deal. We're going to meet weekly. We're going to meet on Sundays. We're going to get together. And for a long time, it was simply we're going to share a meal together. We, they called it the Eucharist or the, the Holy Communion or the, the, um, the Last Supper. That was the, the model of which they went, went after. We know it as just communion. They say, we're going to get together. And we are going to remind ourselves every single week that Jesus Christ died for us and sacrificed us. And it's a message of love from God. And, and, and for us today, um, we like, well, do you, I don't need to be reminded every single week, dude. Just like if you could do that on Easter, like I get that. Like Easter is appropriate time to be like, Jesus. Christ died. Yay! Next week, can we do, move on to something else? And the church just continually did this every single week. They recognize there's, a, there's power in the repetitive, uh, repetitiveness of this. Now, if you've been coming to East Lake for a while, you're like, well, why don't we receive communion? Well, we do it at the end of every series for us. It's just a, a logistics thing for us, and, and it, it, we, there's just a, that's a, a repetitive enough thing for us to be able to decide. And we just said, at the end of every series is what we're going to do. For them, it was every single week. And then they would have um, liturgical prayers. Listen, you've gone to a, a real church before, not a church that meets in a theater that talks like this, but you've gone to like a real church where the dude's all dressed up and, and there's like, uh, you know, fancy windows and it's like cool gowns. You're like, I would never wear that, but it looks cool on him. Good job, man. And he says things and does things and, and there seems to be like this process. There's like this, this liturgy involved and people standing at certain times and, and, and getting down on their knees at certain times and praying things and, and repeating things back that you're like, I don't even know what to do. And here's what you do, like me. Um, if I'm in a situation like that, I identify one person that looks like they know what they're doing. I'm going to follow that guy. I don't care what. When he stands, I stand. When he sits, I sit. Um, that, that's the process, right? The, they, what they dis- discerned early on, especially when uh, in a culture, this, the, the, specifically the Catholic Church, for a long time in history, was dealing with a people group that were uneducated and illiterate. They, they couldn't be like, "Hey, well, read your Bible and know." They, they didn't. They couldn't do that. It wasn't like uh, the fact that one, there wasn't a lot of Bibles to be produced because it was expensive to do that, and the people couldn't read. And so, we're going to develop all of these things to help train people into what we want them to do, based on what we interpret coming out of Scripture. And so, they developed liturgies and rituals. Listen, we have our own liturgy here. As much as I, I like to say like we're non-liturgical in terms of what you're used to, it's just a different type of liturgy. Listen, if you've been coming to East Lake for any length of time, how many songs do we sing every single flippin' week? Three songs. It's always a video. I always talk for like 30 minutes. I never talk for like an hour and a half. It's 30 minutes. You are out of here at 60 minutes over, every single week. This is how it always works around here. And, and you, you even know the power of ritual for you, which is why... You keep coming and doing this weird thing where it's like this monologue and, it, and it's, it's, it's me talking to you and, and some, weeks it's, some weeks it's good and a lot of weeks it's not as good and, and yet sometimes you get things out of it and sometimes I don't, but I keep going anyways. My life just seems to be better when I'm involved in something like this. Listen, the early church recognized it wasn't the power of one specific message. It wasn't like Paul could be like, Hey, we're not going to meet when I don't have anything to say. You're going to come whether I have something to say or not, is what Paul is saying. And in that process of showing up and being present and saying things through the power of song that we would not normally maybe say, but kind of share some of our expression, there will be some weeks where it feels like the message was immediately for me. Like, did you, are you serious? Did you, are you reading my mail? Did you tell him to say this? 
You're looking at whoever came with you. And then there's other weeks you're like, I'm sure that was good for somebody, but I got to go. You know what I mean? And you walk out and that's, and that's completely fine. Like the, the power of the ritual of putting yourself in a position because it's shaping you. It's shaping you. It's doing things to you, whether you know it or not, on an unconscious level. And the fact that I'm even talking about it and participating in it is kind of ironic in and of itself. Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm explaining it to you while we're talking about it. So this is, this is unbelievable. And the, the reality is, even for um, th- this early church, they had this prayer, this, this confessional prayer. We don't have a lot of these, uh, but uh, you, if you went to a confessional church or a, a, a liturgical church, there would be certain prayers, would be numbers on the screen, and here's what we're going to read. We're going to read from this book on page 128. It's going to be, and one of those prayers is this. It says, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and the desires of our own hearts. Here's this regular prayer that would come up as a confessional liturgy, saying, I I remind myself every single week as I come in and do this, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. They would engage in confession. They would go um, confess their sins to a priest. Why do you do that every single week? It felt like it was just rote memorization, this thing that you go through, thing that you go through, thing that you go through. But for them, for a lot of people, it was this training thing of, I'm always thinking about the, the flawed nature of myself, that I get to come in, and for a moment every week, I, uh, I get to uh, pull myself out of a culture that for a lot of times is trying to sell me something, so they're telling me that I'm awesome, and that, I'm, uh, that I'm, I, I am flawed because I need to buy that, but I'm doing pretty good in life. They, they try and identify with me, but then uh, I don't really think about how, how, uh, how selfish I oftentimes am in a culture that kind of celebrates selfishness, I get to come and for a moment confess my sins to somebody or something or a prayer or, or, or in some way and remind myself, man, far too often I follow the devices and the desire of my own heart. And when I realize that it's in this unconscious shaping, when I look at all of the vices that Paul presents in chapter 5 of Galatians, I realize that's a product of me. That's not, I'm not excused from that. That's, that's a result of the situations that I intentionally place myself in. Now, the good news for us is a vice list here is followed up by a virtue list. Paul is saying, here's what God wants for you, which is different, by the way, than kind of what we're used to a lot of times. We oftentimes think that God wants something from us. Maybe you've come to a church before and uh, somebody like me has presented God in such a way that's like, hey, uh, God, and by association, myself, we want something from you, typically uh, money, attention, time, whatever. And, and yet in this, what we see is uh, that th- this that's not a sign of a healthy parent, by the way, right? Paul is, is, is dealing with a, a group of people who have been invited by Jesus specifically. In the book of Matthew, his disciples approach Jesus one day and they say, hey, you pray really good, like way better than we've ever prayed. Could you teach us how to pray? And Jesus says, yes, and when you pray, here's what you do. You start your prayers by saying, Heavenly Father. And in the Greek, that word that he uses there is Abba, Father. Abba, not just a band, also a very endearing term for God. A term that at no point in Israel's history had ever been associated with God. Throughout their history, it was basically the name of uh, 
the I am Yahweh, and when they would write it out, they wouldn't even include the vowels because it's so sacred of a name, the name that which we cannot even speak of, whose holiness is so much greater than ours. It's not even worth associating a name with him because it's not, he's not worthy of that, or he's more worthy of that designation than, uh, associating a name would almost limit his glory. So therefore, Adonai, Yahweh, whatever, all of those things, and yet Jesus comes on the scene and he goes, ah, when you talk to God, he's not some distant far off being with no association to you, whatever. He is Abba, Father, an endearing term of personal relationship. It would be the a social equivalent of Dada or Daddy or that first words that a kid says, always the dad first, right, instead of mama. He doesn't say mama first, what do you say? He says dad after him. I'm just kidding. My kids did. Bonus for me. Um, they, they look at me, and he doesn't even know, my kids don't, don't even know what they're saying. But I think that they do, and they say, Dada, and they associate it with me, and it's like this, oh my gosh, it's that endearing. The first time, remember as the first time as a parent, for those of you who are parents, the first time you heard your kid call you that, you're like, duh! And you realize, like, I'm entering this whole new season of life right now. Like, everything that I've, my life has been so egocentric and about myself, and now it's so other that it's like it's paradigm changing for us. And you find yourself wanting something for your kids, not something from your kids. In fact, when you see parents who want something from their kids, you're like, that's stupid. When you see a parent living vicariously through their high school kid who's trying to make it on varsity, and they're fighting so hard for their kid to get playing time because they feel better about themselves, listen, I need you to do really good this week because, uh, you know, I want to feel good about you as, as my kid. I want to sit in the stands and be like, that's my kid. My kid. Got my jeans. I mean, both of our jeans, but pretty much my jeans on this. We were so competitive, and we live vicariously through our kids. And you look at that, and you'd be like, that's cheap. That's lame. That's stupid. You want something for, from your kids. Listen, good parents want something for their kids. God wants something for you, which is why Paul introduces the virtue list for us in verses 22 and 23. If you grew up in church, the more familiar term for this passage is called the fruits of the Spirit. And you, if you grew up in church, you probably even know like the first couple or maybe, maybe most of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I'm going to read a different version from it, but here's, here's what he says. Verses 23 and 23. Again, from the message version. This is Paul saying, you know what it looks like to get your own way. When life is lived in your own way, expect cheap, loveless sex, paranoid loneliness, a competition, cutthroat competition, everybody's a rival. But this is if you lived in God, if, if you lived in the way that God wants things for you, not from you, for you, if God had his way with you. But what happens when we live God's way? He brings gifts into our lives, much the same way that fruit appears in an orchard. I think that term, that imagery right there is super important. Fruit, this fruit that is naturally a byproduct of a plant existing or a tree existing in its own natural habitat. A tree doesn't attempt to produce fruit. It doesn't like apple, out pops an apple. It doesn't do that. An apple tree being an apple tree in and of itself has the ability to produce its own fruit naturally. This is a natural byproduct of a life lived by God, by, by submitting ourselves to God the way that you want my life to live, all right? Things like this, affection for others, that's love. Exuberance about life, joy. Serenity continues on. A willingness to stick to things. A sense of compassion in the heart. And a conviction that a basic holiness permeates 
things and people. I refuse to use people. I refuse to engage in idolatry, which is things over people. Why? Because there is a holiness, a basic holiness that permeates things and people. I don't treat people as objects. I treat them as a child of God. We find ourselves involved in loyal communities, not needing to force our way in life, able to marshal and direct our energies wisely. Listen, Paul does not provide this as a list to say, choose these things over the other things. Choose this list of virtues over vices. You cannot choose these things any more than a fruit tree can choose which type of fruit it wants to produce this season. What he's trying to do is provide evaluation opportunities to say, what is it that the the rituals and the liturgies that your life is currently based on producing, which list is matching up to this thing? Which one better describes your life? Do you think that there needs to be a check into evaluating what it is that you're going through? And the whole idea is I want you to see things differently. I want you to see things differently. I want you to see how the things that you're engaging in are shaping you. Quit making excuses to why this is an exception. This isn't really who I am. This is not really how it goes. Listen, um, the book of Revelation in Scripture is a very scary book, right? I've never done a Revelation series here at Eastlake because it attracts the weirdos, and I'm, I don't, I don't, we don't need that, okay? So, um, the, but here's what I will tell you about the book of Revelation because you've, you've probably owned a Bible at some point, and you've gotten there, and you're like, I'm out. You know what I mean? The book of Revelation is a different genre of literature than any other book in the New Testament. It's called an apocalyptic genre. There are apocalyptic books in the Old Testament as well. Daniel, specifically the second half of Daniel, is apocalyptic in nature. And it's intentionally different, and you read it differently. In the same way that you read a comic book differently than you read a newspaper, don't you? The comics on the back page of the paper, if you still get the paper, um, they, the, you, don't read the, you don't read news about Hanford on the front and be like, I wonder what Zitz has to say about life. Oh, that was really good. You know what I mean? Like, it's entertaining and it has principles in it, but it's not, it's not the same. It's not factual. You'd be weird to go to the office and be like, did you hear what Dilbert has to say about this? Is, I, heard, I read it in Dilbert. You'd be like, you know that's a comic, right? Everybody would say that, right? And yet there's things, okay, anyways. This is what's going on with this. John, the, the, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, has been exiled because of his beliefs to an island, and in it he begins to write about Rome, in, but he does it in such a way that is creative and, and forces people to take another look at it because Rome has been on a mission to be able to convince the world it is God's gift to humanity. Look at all of the peace that has come as a result of of Rome. Look at which Rome was the empire. Look at how beneficial it is to be a part of the empire. Look at the road system that has developed as a result of the empire. Look at how the judicial system is set up. Listen, if you didn't have us, where would you be? The world is a better place because of Rome. That's the message that it's like this propaganda pursuit that has been going out and going out and going out for so long. And so John decides, I'm going to write about how to effectively see through the spin of it and recognize that Rome is not a gift, it's a monster. The empire, that type of mentality, that type of mentality that treats the top 2% better than the 98%, 
that the richer get richer, the poor get poor, all of that. It is a monster. It's not God's gift to humanity. It's not even blessed by God in that way to see it as such. So he writes Revelation, and he, and he uses the term Babylon. Babylon comes, and Babylon this. And Babylon, for most of the New Testament scholars agree, is a significant, like, is, a, uh, is an example or a, a term that should be interpreted as Rome. He can't say Rome, because then the book would never get out and get the dispersion that it, it would, because Rome would be like, hey, we're burning all those books. Nothing's going to happen. But he's like, oh, I'm not talking about Rome. I'm talking about Babylon. But everybody knows. Everybody knew exactly in that point, when you read Babylon, instead read Rome. And what does it say about this empire? What does it say about these types of people? Helping us see through the spin. Listen, Paul, I think so many times, is trying when he addresses his vice and virtue list, and when we address the liturgies of our life, what my, what my point is, I want you to be able to see through. I want you to be able to see through some of the things in your life that you think operate at an unconscious level and see through it and see how it genuinely affects you. And as a point of an evaluation tool, says uh, Paul says, here, let me give you a list. Let me give you something to say if your life looks like this, perhaps something go- is going on in your life that isn't exactly what you lined up for. And I know you'd never choose it. I know you'd never choose anything on that first list. You're smarter than that. And yet, these things are shaping you, and it is who you are. Perfect example of this happened this week. I'm closing with this story, but um, we found out on like Monday that our oldest daughter, who's nine years old, uh, was not going to have school on Friday. Um, there was a teacher conference or something like that, right? So they sent this note home. Well, Fridays have been the one day of the week. It's my day off. Our two littlest ones are in preschool, and our oldest one is in school. So my wife and I have three, count them, one, two, three, glorious hours, kid-free, once a week. Three hours, nobody needs to be fed, nobody needs to go to the bathroom, nobody needs their butt wiped, everything is glorious for three gorgeous hours, until you get a note home from the teacher that says, by the way, no school on Friday. Fantastic. Awesome. We're going to do a family day. So we decided we're going to do, uh, we called it the original family day because this was, uh, it was just London, Kylie, and I for like five years, right? And so this was back to the original family. And what do you want to do? And this was, uh, this is the big thing. And London said the top priority, we all got to pick one thing that we wanted to do in the, in the morning uh, before we had to pick the kids up from preschool. Um, and London's big thing was, I want to go to Party City, which is the new party store out on Queensgate. I was like, all right, party city. Kylie's like, let's do it. That sounds like a great idea. As we pull into the parking lot for party city, I just have to mention this. Kylie goes, oh, I need to run into Target real quick. So why don't you take London into party city and then we'll meet up afterwards. And I said, I see what you did here. This is, I'm seeing through this. This is apocalyptic here. I got it. I saw, I saw. Anyways, uh, so I took London into this new party city. I'd never been in there before. And you walk through the doors and one, it's a, it's a party store, but it's also themed like so much Halloween stuff out. They got spiders that drop. They got skeletons and witches and everything like that. And then they got on the back wall, when you check out like this wall of balloons, 
that are like 20 feet tall and hundreds of, of options of balloons and, and everything you could ever think of. It sounds like a commercial for Party City. If you own it, you should talk afterwards and I can get a cut or something like that. But it was amazing. Like if you're running a party, if you're, if you're involved in like the celebration stuff at work or you're required, you're on the party planning committee at your work, you should check out Party City. It was amazing. They also have this wall or this thing, this, this end cap with this giant gumball machine. I don't think they're really gumballs because they're the size of like, uh, I don't know, soccer balls, but um, which would be amazing. Gumballs and soccer balls. And on the bottom is racks of candy with the sign that says 15 for a dollar. My daughter could not spend her dollar fast enough, you guys. What they don't tell you is it takes your kids 30 minutes to pick out 15 pieces of candy because they can't decide which ones they want and who they want to buy them for. And I walked in there, and my, I could see like the, my daughter's eyes just sparkle. This is her literal heaven, you guys. Color everywhere. Balloons, candy, celebrations, birthday parties. Everything that every birthday party has ever represented in this store. Dad, can you believe it? Can I have a dollar? You know what I mean? Of course you can. Go pick this out. And I realized in, a mo- in, in that moment, I have never trained my daughter to be a consumer. She has learned that on her own. I never once took her to Target and be like, okay, here's how things, here's how business works. You exchange money, they give you goods and services in return, and that's how the local economy keeps producing, and we're going to be a part of that. Is that okay? Uh-huh. So wait, so I give them a dollar, and then I, yes, and then I get stuff in return. Yes, absolutely, London. There'll be flashcards, and there'll be a quiz later on. Never had to do that for her. She became a consumer without me ever wanting her to do that. In fact, as I watched her do that, I thought, possibly too much of a consumer. Maybe we need to cut this thing down a little bit. Maybe we need to pull back the leash a little bit. And in those moments, I realized the reason that she got this way is because of her mom. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) It's not because of her mom. The reason that she got this way is because we take her shopping. We take her to Costco. This is our family Friday after school. We're all going to Costco. We're getting cheap lunch, and we're going to fill up on samples before we go, and we're going to buy a couple of things, and we're going to go home, and on our way home, we'll stop by Target just real quick because we've got to stop in and buy stuff. That's the world that she lives in. We never had to train her. It is the ritual and the liturgy of the Johnson family household to become a consumer Why? Because we're American. You know what I mean? Uh, That has shaped her more than any sort of class on economics or shopping or consumerism ever could have. And it did so unconsciously. We did not do it consciously. You and I are shaped by the things that we go through and walk through in the daily rhythms of our life. And if we can point to, if we did an honest evaluation between us and God about our life and the results that we are uh, currently experiencing, if anything matches on that first list, verses 19 through 21, we have only our rituals and our liturgies and our social liturgies that we accept and we go through every single week to blame. And so therefore, what we cannot settle on, what we cannot live with, is simply an answer to the question of what is it that we want? More. We just want more of that. Why? Because all we're doing is re-engaging in the cycle. And we shouldn't be surprised. We should not be surprised when we are experiencing broken relationships 
when we're experiencing a failure of communication between the people that we love, when we experience a breakdown of our own personal morals, we have this high moral standard we hold for ourselves, and we find ourselves doing the things that we don't want to do and not doing the things that we know we want to do. Because we've never successfully observed and been able to see through the spin of the rituals and the liturgies that we find ourselves in. And we settle, and we're okay with simply the answer of more. And that, my friends, is not okay. Let's pray. Father, would you help us, help us this week, today, as we leave, see through the mess and the rhythms of our own life and to see what it is that is constantly being shaped in us. I pray that we would not um, settle for the things that we want at the expense of the things that we really want. Help us to prioritize that which is most important for us to build our lives around those things and the rhythms of life that would shape those types of things. We ask for forgiveness for the times that we've messed up in that way. Give us wisdom to know what to do with this information and then, to, and most importantly, do something about it. The courage to do something about it. In your name, amen.